Luke 13, 22 to 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you may be seated. I feel somewhat compelled to, to mention off the top, uh, verse 32 there was perform cures, uh, not curses. That's, that's not what Jesus was talking about. Important detail. And it's good to be here. For those of you who are new, uh, really, really special welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Jonathan. I'm the campus pastor, and uh, I have the privilege of uh, being able to speak this morning. But just before we get there, I just need to say one quick word, uh, and this is for those of you who are not new. Uh, if this is your uh, home campus, this is your home church, uh, I, I just want to encourage you. you. You probably have noticed uh, we have coffee today. Yay, it's really nice. I can see you're, you're awake, you're, you're listening. It's great, um, it's good. Uh, we have not had coffee for a long time here for, for COVID and masks and all the rest. Uh, and so if you are interested in helping out with coffee, please come talk with Jess or give your name at the back at the Welcome Center. Uh, we, we genuinely need people to help uh, make coffee and serve it. It's not hard. If you can pour a pitcher of water, you are 90% of the way there. So it's not hard, uh, just we need a few extra volunteers. So please actually sign up at the back uh, so we can have coffee because uh, it's a good thing. All right. Well, with that out of the way, we're going to be continuing on with our series here that we have been doing for the past couple of weeks, and that is walking through the gospel of Luke with Jesus as he moves towards the cross, right? That's, that's where we're going in this series. And, and we've just heard our, our scripture passage read, 
And, and you may have noticed right off the bat, not, 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 not the curses part, but actually the, the part before that, right at the beginning, Jesus tells his disciples they are to enter through a narrow door. And I think right here at the beginning, I, I want to just address, we're, we're kind of coming into one of the, the biggest critiques of Christianity, and that is Christians have always believed, always taught that Jesus is the only way to be saved, right? This is a, a narrow door that Jesus is talking about, right? And, and, and I think when we come from a culture like ours that, that values plurality, that values openness and tolerance, this idea that Jesus is the only way, that the door would be narrow, seems to really, really, well, even, even offend our just general sensibilities. I mean, I mean, are we really saying, do we really believe that in all the world, of all the religions and all the people on earth, only Jesus is the way? I mean, that, that is really, really exclusive, isn't it? That, that no one else can, can have some idea of, of what the truth might be? Right, if I can use kind of just a pop culture reference, if you've ever seen the TV show The Good Place, right, it takes place in a sort of fictional afterlife, and, and I can't remember, right at the beginning, it talks about, you know what, the person gets there, I can't even remember her name, whatever, she gets there, and she says, you know, who was right? And the answer was, well, everyone got just a little bit right, and I think that that is the common understanding. Yeah, there's lots of different religions, and, 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 and you know what? I'm sure none of them have it right. Everyone maybe has a little bit here and there, but actually the truth is somewhere else. And so Christianity runs into this problem, this, this giant question that hangs over really the church, is Jesus the only way? Is Jesus the only way to be saved? That seems so exclusive, and it seems to, to, to rule out everyone else's ideas, thoughts, or opinions. And I think we, we need to just, we're, we're going to begin to answer that question. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not going to be able to deal with this uh, topic in its entirety, but just as we begin that conversation, I, I would answer, I think, actually everyone makes an exclusive truth claim. Everyone claims that their understanding is correct one way or another. Even, even this sort of generalized tolerance of everyone has a little bit right. What are you saying? You're saying that if you don't believe everyone else is right, they're wrong, right? Everyone makes this exclusive truth claim in one way or another. The only real question we have to ask is, does it hold weight? Does it actually hold weight these claims that Jesus is making. And so this morning, what we're going to do is, like I said, we're not going to be able to address everything. That's not really where this passage goes, but, but I want to at least answer a slice of that question, just, just one particular part, and that is why? Why is it that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Why not other things? Why not what we can accomplish? Why not some of these other um, religions and ideologies that come around the world. Why is it that Jesus alone can save? And so if you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to open. We're, we're going to be continuing reading and working through this passage in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. And we're continuing on with this journey that Jesus is taking towards Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be put to death there. And, and, and as he is going, he's teaching his disciples more and more. 
He's teaching them what does it mean to actually follow after him. And as we have been looking, it's getting more and more divisive as it goes, doesn't it? Right? Jesus is becoming actually far more divisive. Right, right at the beginning when we started this series, the first thing Jesus said was, actually, I am going to be, if you're going to be my disciple, I need to be the top priority in your life, even over family. Actually, Jesus is going to be the top. In fact, last week we talked about the reality of judgment against sin, and this week we're looking at exclusivity of Jesus. And so Jesus is is really trying to show his disciples, what does it mean to follow me? Right? This isn't sort of just fanciful language. What does it really look like, and what are some of the things you've got to wrestle with if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus? And so this morning we're, we're looking at a little bit of that exclusivity, that narrow door that's there, but contrasted with that is the incredible openness that Jesus shows to his disciples, that the gospel is open to all who would come. And so this morning as we walk through this, we're going to see Jesus calls his disciples to struggle for salvation because actually we can take confidence in our saving God. All right? We are to struggle for salvation because we can take confidence in our saving God. So, so we're going to start here at the beginning as we walk through with what does it mean to struggle for salvation. That, that word already might sound really strange to your ears, but, but just go with me here for a little bit. We're going to see where that comes from. Verse 22 begins here with a bit of a reminder of what's going on. It says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And on the way, we find someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? As Jesus is traveling along, someone asks him this question, you know, of all the people who are going to be saved, it's not going to be many, is it? And I find that a really interesting question because we would generally either ask or or say the opposite. We would come to Jesus and say, well, most people are going to be saved, right? Right? I mean, sure, not really bad people. Hitler, you know, he's probably out, but, but the rest of us, we're saved, right? It's interesting here, they, they come with the almost opposite presupposition, but, but Jesus' answer actually refutes, I think, both. Verse 24, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. There's a lot to unpack in that one little verse. But Jesus starts off and he says that his disciples are called to strive. Strive to enter into this narrow door, right? The the word here is is strive. It's the same word for struggle. It's the same word for fight. It's this word of, of competition, of extreme physical exertion. Work at it. Use all that you have to make it through this narrow door. But that, that raises two really, really big questions. Why is the door narrow, and why is it that people aren't getting through? What, why is this door narrow, and why can't people who seem to want to, why can't they make it? So let's deal with the first one, and it's going to help us answer the second What is Jesus talking about in terms of a narrow door? He doesn't really go on to explain it any further, but but we can kind of ask two questions. Is it it a narrow, like a narrow space? Like it's hard to to get in? There's, There's only one way? Or is it narrow in terms of like a narrow time frame, right? You don't have a long time, so so the way is narrow, make sure you get in. 
And actually what we're going to see as Jesus continues this teaching is the answer is both. The answer is both. Look at verse 25. Jesus begins to tell a, a parable, a story to illustrate his point. He says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Right? Jesus gives this example of, of someone who's starting to, to shut their house, right? In the ancient world, this was far more than just locking the front door. No, that you had to actually take bars and beams and actually properly secure it if you were going to, you know, close everything down for night. And so as people are starting to see, you know, this, this master do this to the house, they're going, hey, wait, wait, we want to be in. And, and Jesus' response here is, I do not know where you come from, right? It's, it's the ancient equivalent of saying, I don't know the first thing about you. Who are you? I don't even know where you come from, right? Let alone to, to welcome you in here. And so when Jesus says the, the way is narrow, the first thing he's meaning here is, is time. Actually, there's going to be a time when that door is shut, right? And actually, there is a, an urgency to this call. Fight, strive, struggle to make sure you're in on time, right? Actually, Jesus is saying that there's going to be a day when when it's not open, when actually it, it's not there for us to simply go back and, and see, the door of salvation is one day closed, right? It's why we talk about the gospel here every single Sunday. Why do we talk about what Jesus has done all the time? It's because the truth is, I don't know, are we going to make it to next Sunday? There's no guarantees that, that we will. Right? This is not something that we want to just simply put off as if it doesn't really matter. This is not, I mean, this is not spring cleaning. This is not going to the gym, right? Something we're like, ah, I'll get to it. I'm sure it'll come, right? No, actually, this is saying, this is urgent. You need to deal with this right away, right? I was diagnosed with cancer. They put me in surgery the next week. They didn't say, hey, we found cancer. We'll just wait around a little while. Let's just kind of see what happens. Let's roll with it. You know, it doesn't really, no, get in surgery right away, right? Because when something is actually urgent, when you can miss the deadline, when, when the doors are actually closing, it says, get in. Actually, there's an urgency to this offer of salvation. It's open now, but it will not be forever. And so Jesus' message is strive to be in there. Struggle and fight to make sure. Give everything you have to get through that door. The door is open for a shut time, but, but here's the truth. It's also that there's only one way to get in. Look back with me. Jesus continues this parable. Verse 26. He says, Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But I will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. See, the crowds here are, are woefully unaware uh, of what is coming up. They, they thought they were in. They assumed that they were already part because they had been around Jesus. They had eaten with him and they assumed, hey, I'm good. When the door closes, I'm on the inside. In fact, in other times when Jesus tells this parable in some of the other gospels, he even adds a little bit more the crowds will say, you know, we even, we even did miracles. We performed miracles in your name. We taught people in your name. And Jesus still responds with, depart from me, I never knew you. See, here's the thing. Being around Jesus 
isn't enough. Talking about Jesus isn't enough. Knowing things about Jesus isn't enough. Even doing good things in his name isn't enough. That's not what saves anyone. Jesus says, verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Right, Jesus here, he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Right, these are people who, who claim they're, they're, in, they're descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people that God made these, these grand covenants with. And so from the beginning, they are assuming we're in. We're the people of God. Of course we are in, and in fact, that's where this initial question comes from. The guy says, well, well, the, the Jewish people, we are clearly saved. Is anyone else going to be saved? It's going to be few, isn't it, Jesus? And Jesus responds and says, actually, when you realize what, what salvation actually entails, you might find yourself on the outside. And instead of the Jewish people making it in, he says, verse 29, People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. Some are first who will be last. Jesus says many of the Jewish people who are relying on themselves to make it in, relying on their genealogies, actually will not find a place whereas people from all over the world, north, south, east, west, all over the place are going to find they have a place in the kingdom of God. Those who thought they were first end up last. Those who are last are ending in first. Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? Saying you are from one particular lineage means nothing to Jesus. If you come from a Christian family, it doesn't mean anything. If you come from a non-Christian family, it also doesn't mean anything. We're not saved because we appear to be Christians. Rather, salvation actually comes from genuine repentance and faith in Jesus. Faith alone in Jesus is what saved. That is the narrow door for those who repent of their sin, who turn away from it and trust fully in Jesus as their Savior. That who is saved, that is who is saved. There is no other way. And so we return here back to this exclusive claim. Why is it that it is only faith in Jesus? Why is it that everyone else who thought they were in, who thought they had, you know, the inside track found out they were not? Isn't that just too narrow-minded? Well, see, here's the problem. The problem is, our greatest problem is our sin. It's actually that we have done things wrong and that our sin has not only cut us off from God, but in fact that there is a judgment against our sin. And so if that's the case, there is no other way. Because Jesus, when he goes to the cross, the reason he does so is so that he can actually die on the cross and take that punishment in our place. There is no one else who can pay the debt that we owed. But there's another reason here. There's no one else who can actually restore us to a relationship with God. There's no one else. Jesus is God himself. So where else would we go? Right? If, you, if you have a, a fight with your friend, 
right? And, and now you, you guys are not talking. This is a huge, genuine you know, problem in your relationship, and you are not getting along. It will do you no good to go around and talk to everyone else. You won't restore the relationship in that way. Eventually, you have to actually come and talk to them. Ultimately, it's the exact same thing with Jesus. You will not find a restored relationship with God except to go and talk to God, Jesus Christ himself. And so, yes, the the door is narrow. It is an exclusive claim because Jesus is the only one who can actually deal with the problems that we have. And so Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to strive for that narrow door. Work for it. Fight for it so that, we, uh, so that you actually might be found in the kingdom of God. And you might say, well, okay, but what does that actually mean? How do I do that? Right? I mean, isn't salvation just something we, we have? I believe in Jesus and then, I, and then I have it. How do I actually strive or, or fight for it? Well, listen to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to be fighting for your faith. What does that look like? It means you are pursuing after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, right? Fight to be gentle. I love that. But in fact, that's exactly what the Christian life is called to do. Faith in Jesus results in a pursuit of righteousness. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it means you actually need to look like him means you need to walk a little bit like Jesus, that your life becomes more and more characterized the way Jesus is. Or let me put it another way. If if you get drafted onto the Vancouver Canucks, okay? I don't know how. You made the team. They, They call you. They pick you for the team. You're in. You're on the team. But you actually still need to go to practice. You need to show up for a game every once in a while. You actually need to get on the ice It's the same thing with our faith. When we trust in Jesus, we're on the team, but we're still called to put it into practice, to put our faith into practice. Paul says it this way in the book of Philippians. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, work out your salvation. He doesn't mean figure it out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, work it out. Actually, put these things into practice. Put your salvation into practice. So, so if, you, if you have asked God, Lord, forgive me for my lying, what does it mean to put your salvation into practice? It means you start telling the truth. If you say to God, Lord, forgive me for my pride, for my arrogance, what does it mean? It means I actually begin to look around and see other people and say, how can I serve them best instead of myself? Right? If God has forgiven you of of your lust, it actually means you say, Lord, I I need you to help turn my, my mind, my heart to things that are good and pure and right. Work out your salvation. Right? Don't continue on in what Jesus has saved you from. 
And you might notice here, Paul says, well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not called to do that on our own, but rather to to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit who works in and through us. Work out your salvation. And so here's the question then. If you are a Christian here, does that define your life? Is that what your life looks like? Is it a a pursuit of what is righteous and good? Does this actually define our lives? See, we started by asking here two questions. What is the narrow door? Well, it's the invitation to trust in Jesus alone. Why is it that many are not saved? Well, it's because we begin to try and do it in all kinds of other ways. They placed their trust in the wrong place instead of in Jesus. And so Jesus says, strive for that narrow door. It's an opportunity to actually stop and examine and reflect on our lives. Second Corinthians, Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We're called to look at our lives, examine, and say, can I put my faith to the test? You might say there is a test. Well, here's what Paul said. If Jesus Christ is in you, you should see it. There should actually be evidence. So so here's my my test for you to, to think through your own life. The first question is simple. Do I trust Jesus? Do I trust in Jesus for my salvation? That's that's the starting place. If you say yes, the next question is, well, do I see evidence of that in my life? Do I see the work of the Holy Spirit? Have I seen my life become more and more like him? Do I see a desire and a struggle and a fight to be more like Jesus? True faith results in the pursuit of Jesus, so how is my faith? Look, none of us are perfect on that test. But here's the question. Do we see that work of God in our lives? When I look back on my life a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, can I see a pattern of growing in holiness to be more and more like Jesus? Actually, to follow after Jesus means it takes work, it takes effort, it takes a fighting and a striving to be more like him, ultimately in the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us, but there is an effort on our part, strive to enter through that narrow door. Jesus calls us to strive and work for our salvation, not to earn it, but actually because we have been saved, because we can have confidence in our saving God. Right, see, here's, here's always the, the, the catch when we start to examine ourselves. Sometimes we become anxious. That's all we're doing. We're always examining ourselves. We're always looking over and saying, you know, am I good enough? Am I good enough? And actually, that's not the point. The point is not to make us anxious. Actually, it's to give us greater confidence in what God has done. And so in this last section, here's what I want us to see. I want to see, I want to see how confident we can be in the saving work of our God. Look back with me at our passage, verse 31. It says, in that very same hour, some Pharisees came to him saying, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Right? Isn't this an interesting turn of phrase, right? The Pharisees have always been Jesus' greatest opponents in his ministry. Now it seems though they're actually warning him. 
Now, we're not told why exactly they're, they're warning him. Maybe they just want to get rid of Jesus, and they're using Herod as, as sort of the means to do that. But regardless, the threat is real, right? Herod is, is the ruler of the day, and he is cruel, and he is willing to put people to death at the drop of a hat. He is already at this point killed John the Baptist, had him executed because someone asked him nicely. And so here's the thing, as Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem, he has every reason to be afraid. But Jesus answers in verse 32. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. I love that answer. Right? Jesus says, all right, Herod wants to kill me. Here I am. I'm going to continue on and do my ministry exactly the same as I always have. In fact, go tell him that that's what I'm doing. I am here casting out demons. I am curing people who are sick. Here I am. I'm going to keep going. Right? Her- or Jesus calls Herod a, a fox. Right? You know, most of the time, if you hear someone call someone a fox, you know, they're, they're crunning, or cunning, a little crafty, right? That, that was part of it, but actually they had a different meaning as well. That was insignificant. A fox was an insignificant person, and so Jesus calls one of the most powerful and cruel men on the planet insignificant to what he is doing. I love that response. Jesus actually had a mission Jesus is determined to go to the cross, and the most powerful man in the land is absolutely no obstacle to what he is going to do. And see, I said, I actually want us to have confidence in our saving God, so here's why. If this is how Jesus is walking to the cross, that that rulers are insignificant to what he is going to do for his purpose to actually go and save, how much more so now? will Jesus save? All of the problems that we worry about, all the things that that cause us to stay up at night, Jesus says those are insignificant to my ability to save. Paul writes Philippians chapter one, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says I am absolutely sure that Jesus, who begins this good work in your life, is the one who will complete it. Yes, we're called to examine ourselves and test our faith, but ultimately it is Jesus who holds us and saves us. There is nothing that hinders the ability of God to save you, so trust in him. Jesus is determined to go to the cross, and he will keep doing his ministry until he gets there. Verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Right? Jesus here is repeating that three-day pattern, right? Today, tomorrow, and the next day. He's not saying he's going to die in three days, right? It's going to take longer than that. He's just saying it's coming soon. In fact, Jesus is going to continue, and then he adds in this little extra bit that no prophet will die away from Jerusalem. Again, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. Jesus is pointing out that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, had always been put to death, not by foreign invaders, but actually by the Jewish people themselves. And so Jesus here is is making a bit of a foreshadowing. It's not Herod who's going to kill me. Actually, it's going to be the people, the Jewish people who will give him up. 
And so you could imagine at this point, you know, Jesus must have this just horrifically distasteful idea of who the Jewish people are. He must, he must want them away. But listen to verse 34. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing Right? In spite of the years, literally over a thousand years at this point, God had been working with the people of, of, of Israel, calling them to follow after him, and they had been rebelling and turning away for so long. God still says at that moment, oh, how I would long to hold you in tight, and yet you would not. Right? God's desire is actually to call them all together. See, I think if you... If you read up until this point, you could almost get the idea that, that God was a very closed off person, right? The narrow door sounds like it comes from a narrow, closed off person, but, but that's not the case. Actually, hear me, our saving God is waiting with open arms to wrap us up and call him to himself. He's not longing to punish people. He is longing to save. Right? Listen to how God even introduces himself in Exodus. Exodus 34, God speaking to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is not defined by wrath or anger. He is defined by his abounding and enduring love. That is who our God is. Right? There is a world of difference between someone who is angry, who could be convinced to do something nice, and someone who is loving, who might be provoked to anger. In fact, love is the attribute that defines God. He longs to save and redeem, not cast away. It's the reason why Jesus is going to the cross. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Right? Why did God send prophets? So that they would turn back. It was to call them away from their sin that they might be saved. God is longing to get to know his, or to call people through Jesus Christ. So how does this give us confidence in our salvation? When we approach God, we are not approaching someone who's wishing that we were not there, wishing that we would just go away and stop bothering him. Right? I had a friend, it was a while ago now, I had a friend who worked in a call center, or she was a telemarketer, right? And so she, she needed a job to, to get through school, and this is what she could find. So she would, she would call people in the middle of the night, and, and she was the one who was trying to sell, I can't even remember what it was, that was her job. She, she hated it. <laughs> She quit after about a month and said that that's it. Because all day, all she was doing was calling people who did not want to talk to her, right? No one really wants to talk to a telemarketer. And so she would call people and she would hate it. And sometimes we almost think of that's how we are approaching God, that we're interrupting him when he's doing something better and that he doesn't want to hear from us. But actually, if we understand what this text is saying, actually, when we talk to God, we're not interrupting him. We're actually calling him back. 
He's been calling us for a long time already. God has been longing to talk to us, to bring us to himself, to hold us tight. The door is narrow. There's only one way. It's through Jesus, but Jesus is determined to bring salvation, and the Father's arms are open wide. And the last thing we're going to see here is the future is actually secure. The final verse in our passage, Jesus says, behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus tells them that they won't see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you know where the story goes, you'll know that's exactly what they say on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and the crowds are shouting, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But I think Jesus actually has his mind on something greater. He doesn't have his mind on the first time he's going to ride into Jerusalem, but the second. When he's going to come back in the full display of his glory and everyone will see who he is and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, I, I know, look, these last couple of years have been wonderfully destabilizing for everything, right? If, it, if it's not fires, it's floods or freezing or pandemics or war. I mean, I don't know what happens next month, but I'm sure it's another plague, right? I don't know what, what's going to happen. It's going to continue. Things will, will go out of control seemingly, but here's the thing. I do know where it's going to end. I do know what happens at the end of the day, and it's going to be Jesus standing there. And so I'm not actually worried about the future because I know that God is the one who will, has the end already together. We can be confident because Jesus is working for our salvation. The Father is calling us to himself and the future is in the hands of Jesus. Yeah, we can have confidence in our salvation. And so because of that, Jesus calls us, strive for the narrow door. That day of salvation is one day closed and there is only one way for us to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. So let us deal with him today. Today is the day where we bend our knees and say, I trust in you, Jesus, and in you alone, and I will give all of my life to strive after that. And actually, we can hold that with confidence not worried that it's going to get away from us, but actually that Jesus, with that same determination, will actually save. The Father welcomes us home, and the future is in his hands. Let us rest securely, knowing the one who has saved us, and strive for a salvation that is secure. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, we are so grateful for, for Jesus, Lord, that you have sent him to this earth, not only to teach us about how we can come and be reconciled with you, how our sins can be dealt with, but that you have actually called us to yourself. Father, I pray, would you continue that work in our lives, that we would strive after you more and more each and every day, that we would be longing to be more and more like you. Oh, Lord, I pray, though, as we even reflect on our lives, Lord, let us not be lost in an abyss of unknowability, of anxiety, but rather let us stand firm on the solid rock that is the salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you have loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross that we might be saved. 
Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.